Welcome to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, hosting insightful conversations with fascinating people to shape the way that Britain interacts with the world. In this episode, I'm welcoming back Reuters Foreign Affairs correspondent and author Peter Apps to talk about his new book, Deterring Armageddon, a biography of NATO. As he says in this episode, history is being made by the day, and we look at what that means for NATO right now. And before we dive in, a quick ask of my regular listeners. Thank you so much for engaging with this podcast. I would love it if you could take a second to rate it on Apple or Spotify. This helps other podcast listeners to find it and join our community. So hi, Pete. We're so excited to welcome you back. For those of you listeners who listened to the wrap-up of 2023, I know it went down really well and people really appreciated that episode. If you haven't listened to it, do jump back and see what we talked about last time. But welcome back now, Pete. You've got a really exciting moment when your book has come out. I'd love you to introduce yourself for listeners that didn't listen to the last episode and tell us about your book. Perfect. So yeah, so uh, I'm Pete Apps. So I've done... Uh, 20 years as a journalist or so for Reuters, uh, about just over half of that as a as a correspondent, and then about eight years as a columnist. Um, I've also done uh, 10 years in and out of the British Army Reserve, um, doing various um, things. Uh, and I have also just written a book, and the book's called Deterring Armageddon, a biography of NATO. So it's essentially a the story of how we got from the death of Hitler in 1945 through the Cold War and to the current very confused world in which we now find ourselves. And the last point which listeners may remember is that I was, last time uh, Anna Joy spoke to me, I was in Australia, home in Turing, Asia. So I got back from there about 10 days ago. Uh, so in, in the intervening period, I've been in Taiwan, uh, Thailand, uh, Singapore, Australia, and a variety of other places. So um, that's me. Yeah, amazing. I know we loved hearing about your travels last time, and I'm sure you have reference points around Taiwan this time. Um, but this book is really timely, isn't it? The publication date of this month, because sadly, it is the second year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But it's also the year that we have a potential Trump presidential term on the cards. And so where does that leave us with NATO? It would be really great if you could first sum up what NATO is for listeners that want to refresh their memories and re-engage with this topic. And also tell us about what it's facing this year. Yeah, so uh, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, um, is essentially it's a, you know, it's 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 a club. It's an alliance of now thirty one nations: uh, United States, Canada, and um, most of the nations of of of, of Europe. Um, less a couple like Ireland and Austria that that are neutral for historic reasons, um, and uh, essentially they agree under the terms of the North Atlantic Treaty uh, that they will come to each other's aid in the time of in the time of war. What they specifically agree is that an attack on one of them is an attack on all, um, and um, this comes out of the period immediately after the Second World War, where the Soviet Union, as you'll recall, sort of took over most of Eastern Europe, kept a very large army in Europe, mobilised at the end of World War Two, when the Western democracies were. Demobilizing and people were going back to their ordinary um, their ordinary jobs. 
Um, and that left a huge military imbalance in Russia's favour. And that left very serious concerns, um, particularly in uh, Western Europe, Britain, France, and and, and the Netherlands. Uh, all these new countries getting their getting their getting their act back together after being dominated by by the Nazis. That if there was another war, the U.S. might do what it did after the First World War and go back to being isolationist, uh, and that Russia might be able to take over the whole of the European continent potentially very quickly. Um, and um, various people felt that that would be a bad idea, and that the answer was to was to tie together um, North America and Europe in in, a, in an alliance. Um, and that was signed into being in April of 1949, so exactly 75 years ago this year. Uh, and since then, that alliance has has achieved its ultimate goal, which um, isn't world peace. It's just making sure that none of those countries are attacked by another country, uh, and of course, none of them have been in that time. Uh, and NATO has gradually got bigger at the end of the Cold War, expanded to include the former uh, Eastern Bloc states of Eastern Europe, including the Baltic states, which had been part of the Soviet Union, didn't expand to include Ukraine. A lot of questions over a sort of 25 year period about whether it would. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, Vladimir Putin took a bit of Ukraine and its Crimea in 2014. Ongoing war from 2014 onwards, and then in February 2022, tried to take the whole of Ukraine in a single invasion. Um, and while that didn't work, it kick-started the largest war in Europe since World War II, which is now, as you say, hitting its second anniversary. And you know, to, 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 to where are we now? It's now February of 2024. I mean, I think January of 2024 was the point at which Europe woke up to the fact that there was a credible risk of a really big war on the European continent. So something on the scale of World War I or World War II. Um, and you saw that come out of a meeting of the NATO Military Committee in January, um, where Admiral Robert Bauer, the chair of the Military Committee, was talking about the need for you know, families in exposed countries to have bottled water, flashlights, torches. He was talking about the need to maybe consider conscription, um, because one of the things we've learned from Ukraine is a very long-running war. It's completely consumed the world's supply of artillery on both sides, you know, Russia and uh, one side and the Western stocks on the other. Also drones, also um, rockets, also all kinds of things. Um, and, and it's also, you know, forced the Ukrainians to conscript their their male men, menfolk to fight in a way that was very familiar to us in the 20th century, but but felt completely alien in the 21st. And, you know, though various other people have made similar comments since then, including the British Chief of the General Staff, Sir Patrick Sanders. There's a real kind of sort of cognitive dissonance moment where we're going to sort of, wait a second, what, what, where are we? Is this like the Cold War again? Are we in 1913 where we're about to go and have to, you know, you know sit in a ditch and bayonet people who wear a different uniform? Um, and of course, it's none of those things. We're in a, in a, in a, in a very different situation. Um, and we're in a very different situation for a variety of reasons. As you say, Trump may return to the White House, but whether he does or not, the US is now heavily focused on Asia. And that means for the first time since 1945, where the United States was the dominant player in, in, in European security, that's not something we can count on anymore. And what you're currently seeing is quite a lot of a sort of complicated psychodrama playing out on a day-to-day -day basis. Today, Olaf Scholz, German Chancellor, called on America to do more to support Ukraine. That's produced a pretty negative response in Washington. Um, you know, I was just talking to someone who may well be in the Trump administration, like you know, these, this European criticism is almost designed to, to, to get our backs up. You know? So there's a, we're in a real moment where history is being made by the day. We're looking forward to an era that suddenly looks a lot more unpredictable than we thought it was. And obviously, you know, there's an element which this book, which is essentially a prelude to where we are now, looks back at how we got through those periods in the past uh, and, and a bit forward as to what might happen next. Yeah, as you say, it's, I mean, it's developing pretty quickly, isn't it? You and me sat here in December and had a conversation and we were touching on conscription and obviously talking about how, how the Asian 
context affects the European context, but we're actually saying some quite different things today. It's a evolution, but it's it's quite quick now. Yeah, so I think what's happened here is that the Russians had a much better second half of 2024 in Ukraine than people anticipated. And they did that primarily because they've been much more effective than we expected them to be at turning their economy towards a war economy. So according to UK Defence Intelligence, they're now producing about 100 main battle tanks a month. They're losing about 11 a week, which means that they're building more tanks than they're losing. Probably means that they're safeguarding them up for another offensive sometime during the summer. Now, to put that in context, Britain is going to recondition 150 of its Challenger 2s to turn them into Challenger 3s, and it's going to do it by 2028 or 2030. So that means over a six to eight year period, or four to six year period, we are going to build one and a half times as many main battle tanks as Russia produces in a month. And that, of course, gives you some pretty scary numbers. So uh, Martin Herrem, who's the head of the Estonian Armed Forces, outgoing head of the Estonian Armed Forces, you know, people have been talking, you know, maybe we'll have war in five years. Well, yeah, he said his line is that once the Ukraine war stops, which may or may not be this year, probably slightly surprised if it was, could well be next year. It might only take Russia a year to rearm to the point that it could attack a NATO state. That doesn't mean it will immediately, but there are probably limits to how long the Russians can maintain that war economy. So, you know, that that that's a pretty sort of sit-up moment. We don't really have, you know, the, the Eastern European nations are, are thinking deep thoughts about conscription, but even in Poland, it's unpopular. Uh, the Germans are definitely thinking about conscription. You know, the Germans do have the ability to conscript large numbers of people, and they have the ability to outbuild the Russians when it comes to tanks, probably. Um, you know, um, or at least they can certainly give it a very good shot. But, you know, this is, you know, this is pretty alarming stuff. And there are lots of questions about where the US sits. There are some fairly fundamental questions about where Britain sits. You know, we have a professional military. We've never really liked going down the conscription route, except during the two world wars. Um, our, our military sort of elite, the people who lead our armed forces, are extremely skeptical of citizen soldiers. And, um, yeah, so we're in, a, we're in a really historic moment. And of course, in the UK, we'll get a new government, which wasn't expecting to consider any of these issues. And frankly, it doesn't really want to. And so, yeah, it's a really kind of striking moment. Yeah, I was speaking to other military experts in this. This sense that the narrative has shifted onto when the Ukraine-Russia situation at this stage changes, we get to a new question about Russia. That seems to be a very strong framing. But like you say, last year wasn't, wasn't the whole narrative that was being talked about. It wasn't the starting point necessarily. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the truth is that this is a, this feels very important to us, but this is a sideshow, right? The big question is about whether China will invade Taiwan in the next five or ten years. And my personal view is that I would be, you know, you, so, so, you know, let's take, take, a, take another step back. So the Taiwanese think that they probably have until the 2030s. And the Taiwanese think they have until the 2030s because the Chinese just fired all their top generals because their military wasn't in as good shape as they thought it was going to be. And the Chinese now have a new defense minister. And what was the first thing that new defense minister said? He was, he doubled down on support for Russia and Ukraine. And what that takes you to, I think, is the realization that actually, we're probably on a joint timetable. Would Putin come into Eastern Europe? Maybe, but I think, you know, the closer that Beijing and um, and Moscow get diplomatically, the more North Korea comes in behind that and Iran, and we've both seen them both supporting Russia and Ukraine, the more likely it is that we're actually on the same timetable. And um, now, that, you know, yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, there are, there are arguments that the Chinese might like the Russians to turn up, attack Europe a year or two before they go into Taiwan. But there's also arguments they want to, they might want to do it simultaneously. And of course, there's arguments that the Chinese will never actually dare because launching big wars is really dangerous and people often lose. So it, um, you know, it, it's, it's really kind of, 
you know, we're in this, you know, not very mature world where people are playing these kind of games, um, where I think, you know, it's, it's really incumbent on the democracies to remember, firstly, I mean, I think we have to sort of put our hands up and, and, and really, really kind of acknowledge that wars of, wars of aggression are a terrible idea and we do not agree with them, you know, and Britain broke itself in Suez in 1956. Um, you know, the Soviet Union broke itself in Afghanistan in the 1970s. The US has not ever really recovered from the invasion of Iraq. And Russia, while it is doing quite well, you know, has bitten off a lot more than talk to in Ukraine. So, you know, that, that's a good narrative. And we need to keep pushing that to the Chinese. You know, the Chinese basically very rich, very powerful, lots of issues at home. The, the, the narrative the US is trying to get the Chinese to buy into is that China will get bigger and more powerful by not invading Taiwan than it will by invading it. And the question is whether the Chinese attempted by this idea of humiliating the West, whether the Russians attempted by the idea of humiliating the West, and they think they can get away with it. And um, if they do think they can get away with it, they'll do it. And if they do it, then we'll open a can of worms, as the Russians did with the invasion of Ukraine, where they will try and do stuff and you know present it as a fait accompli. And we have to decide what we do over that. And obviously that is, you know, those are really tough decisions. Or, uh, but you know, even a limited war will wreck a bunch of people's lives and a long running war, you know, is obviously even more, even more all consuming. And what's interesting about this, as we touched on this actually in a recent podcast on China, is that actually the UK and the US are obviously in very different positions. <laughs> In, when you look at Europe and Asia, geographically, and their historical relationships are different. And, and that's an interesting thing for the UK, because the UK has to really get its head around when it's together with the US and when it does something different, right? Yeah, so I, mean, I think it's worth understanding in Asia, in Asia, the UK was totally, catastrophically, and probably permanently humiliated in 1941. Um, when we lost you know, Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong in very quick succession, you know the the idea that um, that sort of the Brits in particular knew what they were doing in international affairs, military affairs, and so forth was was comprehensively broken in about six weeks by the Imperial Japanese military. And actually, if you talk to people, that is still remembered. Now, the US is in a very different situation. It won the Korean well, pulled the Korean War to a uh, to a, to a to a standstill, it defeated Japan in 1941, and notwithstanding the engagement of British troops in defeating Japan, no one thinks it was us that defeated them. Uh, but the, you know, the US fought an Asian peer competitor and won in 1945. Um, so you know that's a very different sort of situation. And you know China would definitely like to think it could defeat the US, but there's also this memory that actually that might go very badly wrong. They might end up fighting everybody, and they might end up in the same position the Japanese were in 1945. Um, you know, so that is you know. Britain in Europe is also in a different position because we've quit the European Union. Um, you know, it's pretty clear, you know, so for example, the, you know, the big NATO air and naval exercises last year, organized primarily by the US, were, were German-led. And they were German-led for a reason. Germany is the economic powerhouse of Europe. It's just closer to the Russians than France or Britain. Um, you know, it has it has reserves of population. It has huge industrial strength. So the question of to what extent Germany sets up to lead Europe in the absence of the United States is is quite high. You know, France is obviously in a bit of a different situation, but it's a lot further west. Uh, we aren't in mainland Europe. Everyone knows we're not in mainland Europe. Everyone slightly suspects that we might let mainland Europe get overrun and then just sort of sit on our own in splendid isolation as we did in 1940. Um, so, you know, we have very different kind of backgrounds there. If you talk to young people in mainland Europe, and there's been some really interesting focus group work on this, they'll sometimes say they don't trust 
They don't want to be conscripted by their national governments, but they might be more open to an EU-wide conscription. Now, an EU-wide conscription, obviously, something that the UK would not be involved in. We've left that under Brexit. I think being conscripted into an EU arm being incredibly unpopular in the UK, uh, even amongst people who like the idea of rejoining the sort of European Union as exists at the moment. And that sort of begs the question as to as to whether you know where the UK stands. I was talking to you know, ex-British Army officer last night, and she was yeah, well, maybe the only thing we have to offer is leadership. And I'm I'm afraid if the only thing you have to offer is leadership, then as a general rule of thumb, no one wants you to lead. So that's not quite true. You know, we do have you know there are points in which Britain might be very important, uh, but I think you know, this is really about Europe stepping up. And I'm, as to whether Britain is in Europe in that kind of calculus is is a really big question. Yeah, that's interesting. So the UK, in terms of how its position within NATO and the positions it takes on the different issues that are discussed and come up, that's that's really crucial for the UK. I think over the next 25 years, we will decide whether we want to become a sort of Switzerland or Singapore. So, you know, we'll actually get back into you. Know, that we're not going to be an adversary to China. We're maybe not going to be an adversary to Russia. We may be going to, you know, you know, to, you know be a sort of, quasi amoral neutral state that you know profits off the rest of the world which is what a lot of countries a lot of countries in the world are doing it's what the Sri Lankans are doing it's what quite a lot of countries in Southeast Asia are trying to do um you know Switzerland's obviously done it for a long time uh, or whether we believe that we have a dog in the fight in mainland Europe and we're going to sort of play up as a as one of the big three alongside the French and the and the Germans and um I think I think it's very unlikely that we'll make a formal decision on that I can't imagine any political party really running on either of those positions. Um, but over time, that is the sort of binary choice that the UK faces. And, um, you know, and it also may or may not have a choice, right? Because actually, you know, if, you know, if, if the world goes in a certain sort of not negative direction, we'll have to, we'll have to, have to make some choices. But I think that is the, you know, and again, you know, militarily, we like having a small military, but don't like having a conscript military. You know, if we want to have a professional military and everyone else goes down the conscript route, then, you know, that, again, you know, maybe we do some Middle East stuff. We might bomb the Houthis occasionally, you know, but um, uh, our role in the defense of Eastern Europe would be relative, would be would not be as great as those that have the mass of industrial strength and, and people. Um, so I, I think there are some really interesting questions that I don't think we'll ever discuss over the next 25 years. And then we'll look back and realize we've made that choice. Yeah, you just, I'm glad you just mentioned, mentioned the Houthis, actually, because that's something else that's happened since we chatted. And I wanted to get your take on that, because it's a, it was an interesting decision of the UK to be part of that, those US-led strikes. We were a small part of it, but we've obviously made a decision to be part of it, whereas France didn't. And I was interested just to get your take on why, why did the UK, do you think, decide to be part of those strikes? Well, so I think, I mean, to be, bl to be blunt, I think the fact that the UK and France is puzzling a lot about how the UK and France are different, right? I mean, firstly, if we didn't want to be part of it, I mean, we could be part of it, we can't, then there's not a lot of point in having any of the military kit that either of our major parties have bought over the last 30 to 50 years. Um, because we have an expeditionary military that is fine for sort of flying missions over the Middle East and dropping bombs on people. And we have a very small number of escort warships, uh, not enough to do anything on our own, really, but um, enough to sit alongside the US, and the US likes not doing things on its own, and so it made a lot of sense for us to do it. France, in contrast, very closely cooperating with the Americans, but not part of their sort of joint mission, not getting involved in joint bombing, and escorting its own merchant ships the length of the Red Sea, which coincidentally are being attacked rather less than other people, than you know, those with links to the UK and Britain, which isn't very surprising because the French aren't doing the bombing. So it, um, you know, they kind of, they're, they're, they both speak quite deeply to the 
you know, the approach, you know, France runs a much more independent foreign policy than we do. Um, you know, they don't like the idea of being a subcontractor for anybody else. Uh, you know, if you look at their, their foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis China, it's not anyone else's foreign policy. You know, they will put ships through the Taiwan Strait. They'll do deals with um, Xi Jinping, uh, but they'll do their own thing. And they won't, they don't see themselves as being sort of, you know, hamstrung by anyone else. You know, they do, uh, we, on the other hand, have been a sort of subcontractor for the US uh, for a very long time. That's, you know, one of the key things I'm very put in my, I mean, I remember watching David Richards when he was chief of the defense staff in Washington, start of the Cameron government. And his sort of pitch at a think tank event was, you know, we, the Brits have lots of great kit and you'll like borrowing it because that's what our strategic main effort is, is to buy US willingness by being, having great kit that you can use alongside your own forces. And, um, no other European country would, would, would approach defense like that. And, um, so I don't think it's that surprising we made that decision. I don't know that, you know, one of the issues at the moment is the UK would love to sort of say, well, we're going to do stuff alongside the US and Asia. The, Euro the Americans are being very clear. They don't want us there. They want us in Europe and uh, Europe and the Middle East. Um, and I think there's a bit of a tension there between what Britain's sort of global ambitions want to be seen as a global power and the fact that we don't really have the clout to do that anymore. Yeah, that's interesting. I wondered whether the being part of the Houthi strikes was... Um partly to do with maritime power and Britain wanting to show a bit of that, or whether the trade detecting imports genuinely is a real driver. Well, um, we're not, we're not, you know, we're, we are, we're not protecting shipping. You know, we have one warship, which would be over, which if the Houthis decided to sink and there wasn't an American task force around it, they could sink in about an hour. So we're not protecting anything. We are part of an American mission where we add realistically relatively little capability because the americans could easily find another destroyer to fill that gap but we mean that it's not a unilateral u.s mission and that is very useful and it keeps you know it demonstrates our ability to do things but i don't think we should pretend that any of the strikes or drones we've shot down or anything else have added anything that the u.s could not have done itself now that's not always true with with these kind of missions but in that case it is on the hand it's been important to the u.s to see that and i think it's also been important to you know john healy that you the shadow defense sector was in the cobra where these decisions were made there's been a whole bunch of messaging that you know obviously we may get a new government that government will also have the u.s's back you know there's a whole bunch of diplomatic stuff but militarily the stuff we're doing is not massively relevant unlike the decisions that we're making in east europe where you know having tanks and so forth the baltic states is a is a, is a much bigger deal yeah yeah it's really interesting. Let's let's come back to the book then. You talk about the NATO being the world's most successful military alliance. And I just wondered, having researched and written the book, and you really, I mean, you went deep into the archives, didn't you? You went deep into the records, things that people haven't put together before. What do you believe are the keys to its success of having got this this far, this long, as a successful alliance across many countries? So I think the first point is that people matter and decisions matter. So like, you know, at any point in NATO's history, but particularly at the beginning, uh, but also at other points, 9-11, um, you know, it's been about what individuals, both people at the top, people like Dwight D. Eisenhower, the first Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, Pug Ismay, the first NATO Secretary General, but also people quite a lot further down the pecking order, people like Jack Hickerson and Theodore Achilles, who created the alliance, mid-level State Department officials. Jack Hickerson was the head of European affairs. Um, you know, these things make a real difference. And the decisions that will shape the next 25 years will be made by people like that. So, you know, obviously Trump is going to be important to you. Um, the lead, who are the next Secretary General of NATO, who most people think is going to be former outgoing Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte, 
you know, that how he manages that Trump, you know, and everyone else balance is really important. You know, the decisions that Olaf Scholz makes in Germany, uh, the decisions that the next Labour government made here, uh, or the next, you know, uh, you know, those are really important. Um, you know, the, you know, to an extent, they shape the decisions that the potential aggressors will make. So whether Putin or however, you know, if we may, if we look, if anyone running the Kremlin, any say any nationalist Russian leader thinks that they can humiliate NATO diplomatically and militarily, then they will. So if we look, make that look easy, then they'll try and do it. Um, and ironically, they may then bite off more than they could chew as they did in Ukraine. And then, you know, we're in a mess. This is what happened with the First World War invading Belgium, what happened with the Second World War invading Poland. Um, so, you know, we, it is a lot cheaper to deter a war than fight one. And it makes a lot more sense to do that. So I think, you know, the, you know, the, the second point I think is that, you know, NATO is important. And I think, um, there's a lot of noise in Britain about being a global military that can do stuff anywhere where NATO is one of its tasks. I would say that actually it's our core task. You know, no one really cares what we do east of Suez. Um, certainly no one cares what we do in Southeast Asia. Um, because they were just, you know, the level of force we can deploy there is not enough to change the price of fish. Um, you know, whether we have a battalion or a brigade in Estonia and how credible that battalion, that battle group or brigade is, that will fundamentally affect Russia's calculus as to whether it can take all of Estonia or some of Estonia or none of Estonia. You know, the Germans and the Canadians have tripled their forces in Latvia and Lithuania, and they've done that because having boots on the ground is important because the next attack may be a surprise attack. So having lots of forces that are ready to move is not terribly useful if the Russians have cut the road in 500 places between where our tanks are in Germany or Wiltshire and where they need to be. So, you know, having for forward deployed forces is important. And currently the UK is, is the weak link, I would say, in, in protecting the Baltic states. And that is being noticed, talked around. The Estonians make a point of not complaining about it, but everyone sort of knows it's there and it's, it's a big issue. And the second thing is, is that, you know, military credibility is important. Military credibility is about more than just tanks. If your soldiers have a reputation as getting more drunk and behaving worse than other countries' soldiers do, and I'm afraid that is something the British military hasn't done enough about in recent years, then that it also has a has a limitation on the willingness of countries like Estonia to host us. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of kind of, and if you're just a bit patronizing all the time, then people don't like that very much anymore. There is a whole bunch of stuff that comes out of that, and successive UK governments have not always been good at learning those kind of lessons. Yeah. What else? people matter the people in the room matter and they're often you know it's easy to look at the presidents or the prime ministers but they're often the subset below that and the other decision makers in the room and that this really focuses the mind around strategic astuteness on the UK or how other countries act ahead yeah what else has been the key to success so I think the tolerance for those people being drunk has started to diminish very fast in the 21st century. They were still quite drunk for quite a lot of the 20th. There's lots of stuff about decisions being made over kind of cocktails and so forth up until, you know, and, and frankly, even in the sort of, you know, even up until the Balkan Wars, long liquid lunches and so forth, that's not really tolerated anymore. So that's quite, that's quite an important sort of thing to, to remember. Um, I think, um, you know, the, the, gra the fact that the Europe is no longer America's top priority because Asia is, is a really, really fundamental, you know, thing that needs to be understood. I think the, the fact that 
you can never guarantee you'll get unanimous decision-making in the North Atlantic Council. And if you don't, things can get very complicated and you can lose credibility very quickly. So George Robertson, NATO Secretary General after 9-11, took a huge risk by getting the North Atlantic Council to vote to trigger Article 5 after 9-11. He got away with it. It was probably a good move. But had he not got away with it, the alliance would have probably ceased to exist. It would have been humiliated because NATO would not have voted to trigger Article 5. That would have looked really, really dubious. And its credibility would have been shot. So that credibility is always something that is going to be tested and it always needs to kind of come up properly. Uh, you know, a whole bunch of stuff will always be a mess. Command, you know, multinational command structures are always a mess. Uh, there's always a bunch of horse trading. Um, you know, but again, you know, people matter, commitments matter, and um, it not being a disaster is never a foregone conclusion. Yeah. Does it, does it actually make it, easier for the UK to have a coherent military strategy now that the Russia threat is stronger now and than it has been for a, a while and perhaps even mirroring some of what happened at the beginning of why NATO was set up? Well, not really, because unfortunately it takes 30 years for us to build kit and therefore we have a military that is utterly optimised to fight enemies who can't shoot down aircraft and um, live in the desert. So not really is the simple answer because the, um, you know, the, the, the force structure we've got, particularly the two aircraft carriers, which are essentially intervention tools, um, are probably what you wouldn't choose to have built if you thought you were going to be where we are today. Um, and it doesn't particularly help that they both seem to have quite dubious propeller shafts with the result that one of them isn't getting out the door to the NATO exercise. And we'll find out in the next week whether the other one will. Yeah, so so you're saying the strategy may be clear, but actually executing that strategy is extremely difficult because of the time lag on equipment. Yeah, I think it's also there's a, there's a conceptual issue, which is that... Um, you know, Britain has always, since the end of World War II, wanted to do stuff in the rest of the world and um, garrisoning what used to be West Germany um, as obviously now Eastern Europe uh, has not felt particularly kind of sexy. Um, you know, it basically involves having your soldiers waiting there to see if anything goes wrong. Um, they don't necessarily particularly enjoy that. Um, neither does anybody else. So, you know, there's a uh, and also, you know, we are not a you know, we're not Finland. We're not. We don't have a strong tradition of of mass conscript service. Um, I don't think there's that much appetite for it. You can see some interesting ideas about uh, you know gap year service. Um, you know, to create this sort of non conscript based citizens army. Um, I don't know how sort of enthusiastic people will be about those kind of ideas, uh, and I also don't know how. British society feels about sending people to die in a European war, because it's not something we've considered for a long time. We were extremely reluctant to in the 1930s. You remember the Oxford Union vote, this house would not die for king and country, about 1937 or 1938, uh, which itself tells you that we can then change our minds pretty quickly, because actually they then all went and did various sort of many of those people did various heroic things immediately afterwards. So um, I think there's a lot of questions and a lot depends on what the rest of the world kind of looks like. Mm. And then one of the things I love about your book is you really managed to find these very compelling, colourful stories, whether it's about particular moments or particular people that help bring to life NATO's history, which, of course, can be difficult to, to digest. But I think in your book, you've just really brought to life these incredible decision moments. 
Are there any of those stories that you can tell listeners that you were particular, particularly struck by? Yeah, so I think, I mean, I mentioned earlier the importance of, of, of you know, relatively mid-level officials. So I think my favourite bit of the book is, uh, Chris, is New Year's Eve 1947 to 1948, where uh, Jack Hickerson, who's the head of European Affairs at the State Department, has been out drinking in Washington over lunch. And he comes back to the State Department and he strides slightly inebriated into the office of his deputy. And he tells him that... They are going to, I don't care if entangling alliances have been the greatest originals, the greatest sin in American politics since George Washington. We're going to build a binding alliance. We're going to do it right now. And he basically says to Theodore Kersin, now, hey, I've got it started. He's just come back from a meeting in, in London where um, Ernest Bevan, great British foreign secretary, has sort of tried to persuade him that this alliance is a good idea. He's thought about it on the boat. He's decided that an alliance is a really good idea. And he tells his deputy that they're going to do it. And by God, they do. Over the following sort of six months, they, you know, they cajole senators and generals and they get Truman on side and they get a bit of help from various foreign ministers in Europe and so forth, and they build this alliance. And they're helped massively by the Berlin blockade, which produces the Berlin airlift. So Stalin tries to squeeze West Berlin, which of course really sort of helps to make their case for them. And they write this thing, you know, they write the North Atlantic Treaty, which we still have today. And um, luckily, they both gave very colourful accounts of this to the Truman um, Presidential Archive afterwards. So, you know, you have, I mean, the reason that I have these stories at the risk of stating the obvious is because people wrote them down. If they hadn't, I wouldn't have them because a lot of the more sort of colourful ones are from the very beginnings of NATO. So, you know, there's quite a lot of stuff. Eisenhower told his chief archivist that they needed to keep a good record of building NATO because if it worked, then people would want to learn from it. If they didn't, then people would want to learn from it as well. So, you know, there was a deliberate decision to capture this kind of stuff. And and also a generational thing. It's actually much harder, interestingly enough, to to resurrect the feeling of meetings that took place, say, during COVID, you know, where actually there's there's not the same kind of records written down, even if and even if they are have been written down, they haven't been declassified yet. It's been it's the whole thing has been a rather fascinating exercise in written memory and 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 you know remembered memory, um, and it's been actually interesting quite looking at how those different eras have been different. Yeah, I'm I'm always I mean I'm fascinated myself by the this process, right, that takes something quite visionary coming into being. There's a really interesting process of someone having quite an inspired idea or perhaps sometimes even an idea that's quite outside the norms of that time then passing it on and someone else kind of those early adopters grabbing onto it but then often some kind of external event that that suddenly shifts that idea into something that people would actually consider and then real hard graft to try and build something with a wider group. It's fascinating. It's really interesting for us as we think about the future now that it's going to be necessary for some people to be having vision and ideas of, of things that are going to be needed, right? Strategies, alliances that don't necessarily straight away get traction, but then may do because of how events evolve. So I think the other interesting thing is there's things that don't happen, right? So, you know, as the, as the Northland Treaty was, was signed, um, Dean um, Atchison, who was the U.S. Secretary of State, um, says, "Right, well, yeah, I think we should go for a full federal union." And what he means, so sorry, he didn't say it. It was Theodore Achilles, the Atchison's uh, deputy, but they, they both agreed that it was a good idea. Full federal union. We're talking about a union of the United States, Canada, and Western Europe, you know, into one country. And actually, of course, no one could really be bothered to do that. You know, there there wasn't any real interest in building a transatlantic superstate, and therefore it went nowhere. And actually, whereas the European Union 
actually did start going somewhere. And one of the, the interesting things is that, you know, the mainland European politicians who had had a very different Second World War, you know, their countries had ceased to exist. Um, they really felt that building a supranational state was the answer. So, um, a continent Adenauer, you know, the, the, fir um, the, the first sort of French leadership, um, uh, French foreign minister called Schumann, uh, you know, they really believed that tying their countries together so they can never go to war against each other and building what is the modern EU was the right thing to do. Um, whereas the Brits and the Americans never really, you know, they just didn't feel the, that kind of historical need to do that. And so it always became just a sort of military alliance. So I, I think it's quite interesting, you know, both what happens and what didn't. Eisenhower, I found a really sort of, you know, he's probably one of the sort of heroic leaders, really, really does a huge amount. He, he, he One of his deputies said he believed in institutions, he believed in people, and he believed in building up both. So he talks up both, even when in his diary, he's talking about how he hates the job. Uh, and actually, you know, com comparing his public speeches and people's accounts of talking to Eisenhower with what he was actually writing in his diary is quite fascinating because he really, you know, he, he did his moping in private and they're both, you know, the truth is he was overly enthusiastic in public and overly negative in private. Um, but he managed to make that division work. And if he'd said the stuff in private, in public, that he said in private, NATO would never have gone off the ground. Um, but actually he managed to sort of thread through that. And that's all, that's also really interesting. That's very interesting. That's the personal leadership side, isn't it, of, of, of leadership that inspires and brings people along, but how somebody manages their own internal <laughs> perspectives and leadership as they go through that journey. Any other moments that particularly struck you or that we can learn from? Uh, so, I mean, I think, I mean, I quite, so, I mean, essentially every time there's a crisis, the same thing happens, which is the Americans send people from US intelligence to brief the North Atlantic Council and explain why something must be done. So it happens with the Berlin blockade, it happens also the Berlin blockade, building the Berlin Wall, it happens with the Cuban Missile Crisis, it happens before the invasion of Ukraine in 2022, it happens with WMD, memorably for Iraq, where the, where the you know, intelligence doesn't turn out to be quite as reliable as, as the Americans sell it. Um, but at the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is a point where there's quite a major spy hunt taking place within NATO HQ because it turns out they're based in Paris at the time uh, that um, that Paris has been quite heavily penetrated by the KGB. Um, the CIA briefer passes around a map showing all the Russian positions on Cuba. And the map never comes back. Someone nicks it. <laughs> and... Um, he sort of, he notes in his report back that he didn't put anything particularly secret on it, so it's probably fine. But, um, you know, those little kind of details um, are kind of fascinating and you find them sort of squirreled away in bits of archives. And, um, you know, it's quite, you know, the fact that NATO is sort of never that well run and yet simultaneously works, I think says something quite deep about the nature of bureaucracy. Um, you know, a more modern North Atlantic Council ambassador says, so this is the way of things. Um, but, um, you know, it's a very human story. Um, and the truth is, it's always got that sort of element of farce to it, obviously, never more so than under the Trump administration, but, but it's always there. Um, and yet, actually, it does pull through, you know, it pulls through the first Trump administration, it may well pull through the second. And it's always on the edge of crisis, it's always about to collapse, it never quite does. Now, that doesn't, you know, past performance is no guarantee of future success but you know lots of previous generations and some of these are really quite flawed characters i mean henry kissinger comes through the book quite a bit as richard nixon 
both of whom had a very short emotional fuse when it came to Europe. And at one stage, Nixon sort of says, we don't have to stay, Henry. He sort of means we could pull our troops out. He's saying a bit of a sort of hissy fit and offers about the fact that he feels Americans being taken for granted. In a way that, you know, I mean, Kennedy, to be honest, wasn't that far off. And, and, and Eisenhower used to do the same sort of thing. So the same stuff that Trump talks about, you know, with rather more expletives, you know, has been bouncing around within the US establishment for a while. But, you know, they, they, they knuckle through it. Um, you know, there's um, there's very little swearing in the book until you get to the Trump chapter, at which stage all manner of expletives suddenly start dropping all over the place. Um, and the 2020s are completely bonkers, as the sort of as the quote at the beginning of the chapter says. You know, COVID, Ukraine, Afghanistan, a lot happens kind of back to back at that point, um, and that is is quite of interesting. It's also, it's a real sort of, it's really quite something to write a story that starts with Churchill and ends up in the present day. And it does give you a feeling of sort of continuity. And you know, while the current problems are serious, they are, you know, certainly within the realm that Eisenhower and Churchill and Pugismo who'd fought in Somaliland for Camel Corps, you know, would, 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 would fit within their lived experience. And, um, you know, and then you've got the question as to how today's generation can deal with that. Um, and that does get more complicated. You know, today's young people are very different to the young people of 1913, young people of 1939, uh, even the young people of the 60s. Yeah, I love that as a summary of kind of an overall overriding message that, <laughs> that it's never quite worked and yet it has worked, that there's been all sorts of human error, human challenges, moments that didn't quite go how people expected, a lot of bureaucracy, and yet it has survived up to now and actually meets the need of the time now in a state that it can confront it and can can find a way forward. That's it's quite an optimistic message, I might say. Well so but I mean, but it could easily have gone very wrong. So to put it give one example during the just after the building of the Berlin Wall in 1961, so the first year of the, of the Kennedy administration, Loris Norstadt, who was NATO's Supreme Allied Commander at the time, uh, said that he received three contradictory orders from US cabinet-level le leaders, which means Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, those kind of people, um, all of which he felt would probably start World War III if he implemented them. So he just didn't pass any of them on. Um, you know, that is, you know, now, you know, Loris Norstadt was a proper grown-up. He'd been Eisenhower's sort of chief air officer for most of the war. He, you know, he also shows a huge amount of common sense during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, but, you know, sometimes, uh, again, General Mike Jackson, a British commander in Kosovo, who chose not to try and get the Russians out of Pristina Airport with them, you know, when, when ordered to attack them by, uh, the, by a U.S. general at the time. You know, there's quite a lot of moments where someone has to do something not very stupid. And, um, yeah, I mean, so it, it's... Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, this is what history is like, right? It's real people making really messy decisions without proper knowledge of where things are going. And we are entering an era which is, you know, is going to be some pretty serious damned history in the next 25 years. Yeah, a rallying call for leadership and people to be involved, actually, and to take the time to look at history in order to consider the wisdom and and how it helps us understand na national identities right and decisions going forward i love it what an amazing compelling invitation to read your book <laughs> which can be purchased at all good bookshops and bookstores is there anything else that you'd like to leave listeners with so yeah no um do feel free to read the book. It's also an audio book, 15 hours of my voice taking you all the way from uh, the present day back to the 
fall of Berlin and all the way back to the present. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun to be involved in. It's been a lot of fun to be here and I look forward to, uh, to coming back. Thanks, Pete. Thanks so much for joining us. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Great British Foreign Affairs Podcast, where Britain meets the world. Subscribe today, share it with a friend or colleague, and be part of shaping Britain's role on the global stage.